Christ is risen. risen I love saying that. If you're anything like me, Easter is a familiar holiday. And today I'm painfully aware that there are at least several people in the room that could probably preach this sermon better than I. But I'm your new rector, and so we have to set the bar appropriately low. We're going to do away with any illusions of grandeur right out of the gate. And so here we are on Easter Sunday. And I was thinking this week about how many Easter sermons I've heard over the years. And many of you who are sitting here today have actually preached those sermons to me, uh, whether it's Bishop Ed or Father Chris Green. Uh, My father is here today. Paul Craig Paino is somewhere in this general, I can't see very well, somewhere over here. But I've heard a lot of Easter sermons and... If, again, anything like you, you have heard a lot of Easter sermons. And again, if you're anything like me, you have forgotten a lot of Easter sermons. But Easter, like so many days, has become this kind of perfunctory holiday. It's become this kind of hurried reflection on Christ's resurrection that We need to push on past this day so we can get to the real business. We can get to the power of Pentecost instead of holy seasons for us as Americans. So many of us forget to pause. We grow up in traditions that celebrate special days like Christmas and Easter and Pentecost instead of holy seasons. But a day isn't really able to mine all the deep truths that are present in this moment. We can't really grasp the whole story that we belong to, of the church's story, with just one given day. And so we create these episodic highs followed by these big letdowns. But Easter isn't over after today. This season of Easter is actually 50 days. It's longer than the season of Lent that we've just traveled out of. So we shouldn't rush today. We don't have to try and cram all of the resurrection glory into this one single moment. But still, so often we rush through today, we hurry through today, because on some level, resurrection feels like just a hope. It feels like a a distant promise for us. So Easter becomes a day of concentrated reflection at best. But, we think, resurrection has no real bearing on our lives as we live them. It has no real implications for the pain that we experience now, for the death and disappointment and disillusionment that we experience now, for the monotony and the humdrum rhythm of our lives that we experience day in and day out. Resurrection, at best, becomes something we simply long for in the future. In some ways, Easter becomes for us like, like the sunrise, that it's 
too big to really wrap our head around, and so we don't give any time to considering the mechanics of how the sun rises. We don't think often about the earth spinning at a thousand miles per hour. We don't think about traveling an orbit of 584 million miles around a star that's roughly a million times bigger than the earth because it's dizzying, it's too big for us to appreciate. And yet, because we come to expect the sunrise every morning, we're not always impressed by it. Most of us sleep right through it, but it doesn't make the fact that it happens any less miraculous. In the same way, there's an unfortunate familiarity with Easter that we have to push past in order to let the reality of resurrection actually sink into our lives. We need to pause and we need to realize that we are saying something about resurrection. That this something of resurrection has happened to someone and that has implications for the whole world, not just for us, but for all of creation. Today, we announce that that something is that Christ is risen. That claim is the center, it's at the heart of the mystery of our faith, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. But it's not a claim that we make in some cliche, familiar way. It's a claim that we have to cherish and understand not only what we mean about resurrection, but what we mean about death itself. Christ is risen. Why is that good news? Robert Jensen, he makes the statement that Christ is risen is good news precisely because of who Christ is. He says, Stalin is risen has a much different tone to it, doesn't it? There is only good news because of who is alive. Jesus And he is not just one of us. He is God of very God, having taken on all of our humanity. Jesus is not just a human being. Jesus is the fullness of our humanity. And Jesus, by taking up the fullness of our humanity, by becoming human, even to the point of death, as the scriptures tell us, Christ takes up everything about who we are. He takes up everything that is wrong with us so that it can be healed. That's what we claim about Jesus. Not that God just becomes a human being, but that Jesus takes up all of our humanity so that everything that is ours becomes his and that everything that is God's can become ours. As Paul says in Romans, we are joint heirs with Christ. What does that mean? This means that everything that God the Father intends for Jesus, God intends for you. This means that whatever happened for Jesus will happen for us, even resurrection. Christ is risen is not just a historical claim about something that happened to Jesus. It's a claim of hope. It's a claim about the future, about the reality that we live in right now, that because Christ is risen, we will be too. 
Christ as risen becomes a claim about our lives as much as it's a claim about Jesus. So that when Christ dies, we die with him. When Christ lives, we are brought to new life in Christ. We die with Christ and we live in Christ. But for us to say that Christ is alive is to also say that Christ was dead. That's the tension that we sit in on Good Friday and Holy Saturday. And it doesn't matter what we say about resurrection if we don't know what we mean by death. What does it mean that Christ, that God in the flesh has died? Father Green gave me this quote, he won't remember doing it, but he said, as the ancient church says, one of the Trinity suffered and died for us. One of the Trinity suffered and died for us. How is that possible? And why is it possible? Why does there have to be death? One reason is that because Christ comes and takes on death, because death is the farthest reach of creation at its death. As the writer of Ephesians puts it, the one who ascended first descended to the lowest parts of the earth. And the image that the writer of Ephesians wants us to see is that Christ, in taking on our humanity, claims everything from the highest heights to the lowest depths, including death itself. None of us actually experience death. At best, Death is still a metaphysical reality to us. It's something beyond our reality. We may know what it is to experience dying, but once we're dead, no one's really there to experience it with us. And so Christ experiences death in a way that we cannot. He does so precisely so that the farthest reach of our experience as created beings, even beyond what we can reach, is claimed by Christ. As the psalmist says, there is no height, nor depth, no one and nowhere that can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. All of us, as long as we live, we live because the image of God is at work in us. Rabbi Joshua ben Levi says this, a procession of angels passes before each person and the heralds go before them saying, make way for the image of God. I love that image that before each one of us is an angel who's proclaiming as we move about our days and our beings, make way for the image of God. Everywhere we go, everything that we do, we go and we do as people who are marked and held into existence by the image of God. And the same is true for every person, even the most wicked, evil person that you can imagine. As long as they are alive, they are alive because God is at work in them. It doesn't matter how deeply they've betrayed themselves or others, whatever crimes they've committed, that they are still living and breathing means that they are imprinted with the very image of God. 
This is the image that we see in Genesis 1, that God breathes life into us and sustains us with that breath. But then we ask the question, what about when we die? What about when the divine breath leaves our bodies? Well, today we know that Christ is the fullest image of God. And on Holy Saturday, Christ was dead, precisely so that even when we are dead, the image of God remains marked on us. That Christ was dead means that there is nothing that can happen to you, even your own death, that can separate you from the love of God. And we announce today, Christ is alive, that the one who was dead is now alive and alive forevermore. And so now we're left to sort out, what does that mean? Now that we know what it means to say that Christ died, what does it mean to say that Christ is alive? Today, I want to tell you, don't believe anyone who tells you that Jesus came back to life. Don't believe anybody who tells you Jesus came back to life. In the words of Jesus, simply look at them and say, get behind me, Satan. Because it isn't true. Jesus did not come back to life. That's resuscitation. To live and then to die and then to come back to life is to return to life as you were and then start dying toward death all over again. This is the story of Lazarus. If coming back to life was the miracle, technically, Lazarus's coming back to life was actually more miraculous than Jesus. He was in the tomb longer. He was in the ground for four days when Jesus was there for three. But Lazarus dies. Lazarus is raised from the dead, but then immediately starts dying toward death all over again. And then Lazarus dies. Jesus does not come back to life. Jesus is resurrected. Jesus doesn't enter death and then return back into life. Jesus dies and goes all the way through death, coming through the other side into new creation. As the new creation for us. Jesus lives as the new creation and this matters because resurrection means that there's more than just life as we know it. The resurrection is not just about this life going on infinitely. Let me tell you, I don't want life as I know it to just go on infinitely. The early Christians talked about Resurrection Sunday as the eighth day. They talked about this image of Genesis when they knew that in the beginning God created, there was day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, day seven, God rested. And this is the cycle that we live all of our days in. But on Easter, they said, oh no, this is a new day. God rested yesterday. And now today we step into new creation because resurrection isn't just about infinite life. Resurrection is about new life. It's about new creation that's made possible for us in Jesus. G.K. Chesterton has this beautiful quote about resurrection. He says, on the third day, the friends of Christ coming at daybreak to the place found the grave empty and the stone rolled away. 
In varying ways, they realized the new wonder that the world had died in the night. What they were looking at was the very first day of a new creation with a new heaven and a new earth. And in the semblance of a gardener, God walks again in the garden, not in the cool of the evening, but in the dawn. This eighth day, this new creation imagery was so important to early Christians that converts to the faith were actually baptized in eight-sided baptistries. Why? Because they were announcing that when you enter into this community, when you become a member of the body of Christ, you are entering into a new dimension altogether, that you yourself are a new creation. Resurrection is about our lives being transformed into the likeness of Christ. Again, as our friend Father Chris Green once said, resurrection is not interminable living. It is about life. It's not living endlessly. It's living fully as God lives. Part of the challenge, part of why entering into this resurrection life is so difficult is because we have to let go of some things. We have to let go of everything we think we know about the life that God imagines for us. In the garden, Jesus looks at Mary Magdalene and says to her this mysterious line, do not cling to me. Do not cling to me. I think Jesus tells Mary not to cling to him because he is about to ascend. That he's saying to Mary, don't cling to the Jesus you've known because he is about to become the ascendant Christ. And when Jesus ascends to the Father, the ascension does not take Jesus away from us. The ascension actually makes Jesus available to us. It makes Jesus present to us in a new way. Some of us need to let go of that Jesus that we have known in order to find the one who is doing a new thing in you and for you and for your neighbors. It's interesting that those who encounter the risen Christ often fail altogether to recognize him. Mary is Jesus's most faithful disciples. She's the first one to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. She is the apostle to the apostles. She knows Jesus well, and even she fails to recognize him. Oh, he must be the gardener, she thinks. She has this whole conversation with Jesus, thinking that he is somebody else, and it's not until that he calls her by her name that she realizes this is the one who knows her, and she recognizes him. On the Emmaus Road, Jesus comes and walks with his disciples, walks with them potentially for hours, and even they do not recognize him. They think that Jesus is just another stranger on the road, and it's not until they're in the home and Jesus blesses and breaks the bread that their eyes are opened and they recognize him and he vanishes. Then the seven disciples who after Christ's death, are fishing back in Galilee, and they fish all night, and they catch nothing. And then Jesus is on the shore, and they don't recognize him. So he tells them, you know this story, to throw out their nets on the other side. 
and miraculously their nets are filled and John says, it's the Lord. So the seven of these disciples, they end up on the shore and Jesus is making them breakfast. And then there's this odd line and the text says that no one dared ask him who he was for they knew he was the Lord. All at once they knew him, but they knew that there was something different about him. Again, when Jesus meets his disciples in Galilee, it says that they worshiped him, but some doubted. Is this Jesus? I think so. But he's different. There's something new about him. Why? Why is this different? It's different, again, because Jesus has not simply returned from death so much as Jesus has gone all the way through death and entered into a completely new dimension, a completely new reality. Tolkien steals this idea. If you remember the story in The Lord of the Rings, Gandalf the Grey falls down into death to battle the Barlog. And when he falls off the bridge, that's the whole you shall not pass moment. You've all seen this. And then later Gandalf returns and he returns as Gandalf the White. And when he shows up with his friends, they oftentimes don't recognize him immediately. Tolkien knew exactly what he was doing. He's taking this narrative directly from the risen Christ. Now hear me. There are times when understanding Jesus historically and in his own context is helpful and it's important, but it's not everything. Remember Jesus's words, don't cling to me. Because as much research as we can do, as much reading as we can do, we can never really reach the historical Jesus. I can learn about him. I can learn about his world, his history, his context, but I can never quite reach that Jesus. I've been lucky enough to go to Israel. It's been 20 years, but I've been to Israel. And I've walked those roads at the Via Della Rosa, and I swam in, well, floated in the Dead Sea. I've been on that little boat on the Sea of Galilee where they make you fish. The best that we can take away from those moments is to hope to learn something about Jesus. This is the Jesus that Mary knew. This is the Jesus who washed his disciples' feet, the same one who walked on those waters in the Sea of Galilee, who calmed the storms. And that Jesus remains largely inaccessible to us. Yes, we claim that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But you and I can't step back into first century Palestine and meet that Jesus. Who we can encounter today is the Jesus that Mary encounters in the garden. Who we can encounter is the Christ that the two disciples meet on the road to Emmaus. And we believe that we meet this Jesus every time we come to this table. We can encounter the Jesus that Saul of Tarsus meets on the Damascus road. This is part of the mystery and the hope of our faith that we don't have to go back in time to encounter Jesus. No, the eighth day Christ is transcendent to time and to space. Today, billions of Christians around the world are gathering just like we are and they are worshiping Jesus and they are coming to the table and they will meet him in the bread and the wine of the Eucharist. That's the Jesus that we can encounter. 
Christ in all times and in all places is accessible to all of us. St. Ignatius, the fourth Orthodox patriarch of Antioch, he wrote, the risen Christ is the only person who is in present and perpetual communion with all beings. He says, in other words, it really is true that you can encounter the risen Christ. How? We quote Jesus, seek and you will find. Ask and you will receive. Knock and the door will be opened to you. We're about to have an altar call. Again, Mary Magdalene, she had to stop clinging to the Jesus that she had known in order to recognize the Christ now present to her. This story in John's gospel, it's a retelling of sorts of the Genesis narrative in the garden. In the Eden story, Eve is reaching out for what is not hers And because she claims what is not hers, she's driven out from the garden. She reaches out for the knowledge of good and evil. And because she takes what isn't hers, she's driven out. This morning, in this garden, Mary reaches out for what is hers. This is her Lord. This is her God. But she wants to stay in the garden. And this is the temptation for all of us today on Easter Sunday, that those of us caught up in the joy of resurrection, not that we claim and cling to the knowledge of good and evil, but the knowledge of this Jesus that we have known. And we want to stay in the garden. We want to stay secure in our experience of God, secure in our experience of the peace and the joy that God brings. And we would rather forget the fact that not all of the world is a garden, that we know a secret that not everyone knows yet. Not everyone has heard that Christ is risen. Not everyone has tasted and seen that the Lord is good. So it's our temptation to stay put to stay in the garden. But what Jesus says is not stay here with me, remain in the garden. What Jesus says to her is don't cling to me. We have to find a way to carry the joy and the peace that we experience at this moment and at this table on this day that the Lord has made, as the psalmist says, and carry it out into the places that are broken. We carry it out to the angry and to the estranged and to the confused and the doubting and the bitter and the cynical because they are all waiting to hear that Christ is risen. And they will hear it when we start to live lives that take the resurrection seriously. When we live lives that no matter if we are cursed or killed, if we are bruised or broken, it doesn't matter because we have breath. And so long as we are breathing, we are marked by the image of God. And then even in death, Christ has gone before us and we are marked by his image. As Barth says, our foes, sin, the curse of death, today they're defeated. They may behave as though the situation were different and we must still reckon with them. But fundamentally, we must cease to fear them anymore. Amen.